Blog Talk Radio. Actually... I am here. Greetings. I hope I Happy Halloween, everyone. Through. No, it's not, but that's okay. Oh, good. But, yeah, why do we love telling stories to open up the show? Why do we love this? Every year we get together and tell stories. Why do we love this? Me, I just love carrying on the old tradition of the campfire sitting around telling scary stories and trying to out-scare everyone. What about you, uh, Carl? Well, I think it's partially that, and, and, and I think it's... I've always considered Halloween a celebration for kids and, and a way for adults to, to, to let go and, and tell stories of, of of uh, ghosts and and that remember it comes from the day of the dead. This is the day before uh, um, before uh, uh, November first. Uh, this is all Hallow's Eve, so this is when the dead come back to visit. And then tomorrow, well, to really go into bigger people. detail. It's All Saints Eve, and the most religious day of the year. What church is it that ha- celebrates All Saints Day? Well, basically, Carl. basically liturgical churches, uh, Catholic, uh, Episcopal. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call it the biggest day of the year. That would be Easter, but nonetheless, it, it, it's it's a big day to celebrate those that have passed on, and so yeah, part of that really also. Yeah, but it's traditionally the most holiest day of the year, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we have Miss Vicky, who just loves. Who's not coming from from religious or the aspect I am? Tell us why you love telling stories and the art of storytelling. First, I just have to say that Halloween goes way back before any institutionalized yeah, church. Okay, it's pagan, and uh, every every group of humans throughout the history of human beings have loved to sit down, tell stories, and especially scary stories to um, scare people. It's basic. It's innate. Um, we've been doing it. The, the, the Romans did it. The Greeks did it. The pagans in uh, the upper levels of the, uh, uh, the world have done it. The Asians have great 
stories. Middle Eastern stories are scarier than scary. So they're everywhere, and they've been around forever. And so I, I like to tell stories because they connect us to each other. That's what, that's what it's all about, connecting humans to other humans. And they don't just connect you and I. They connect us with our past humans because we still are um, – we still read – literature that was produced 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years ago. And so um, it's the story that connects us to humanity, and that's what we love. Yeah. Have you seen how old school Brian's going this year, guys? No, I, I haven't. haven't. You've seen the pictures, haven't you? He's making turnips. Instead of pumpkins oh, yeah. for the jack o' lantern. Yes. Oh, I can they see that. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. That's what we. That's what originally Halloween was. It was turnips, not jack o', okay. not pumpkins. Right. Right. The reason we transitioned over pumpkins is because of how convenient they are. They're hollow. They're easy to cut. We just got to dig the guts out. Right. Right, because turnips are not easy to carve. And he said they were a but, bitch to find, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because people don't eat them. You should eat them. They're really good for you. But I love turnips. Don't eat them. Jeez. And now with Vicky's story, we want to go. A documentary came out last year. A movie based on these stories came out this year. But tell us why you picked the book, this book, to pick stories from, and a little bit about the guy who wrote it. Okay, well, this goes back to when he was, his books were really, really being, just coming off the shelves in the 80s and 90s. Um, well, mostly the 80s because he died, unfortunately, in the 90s. But um, Alvin Schwartz wrote these. He he dug out all kinds of scary stories, legends. He went. He traveled all around the world looking for these, and so he wrote them in these books. And he wrote them for young adults, for teenagers, for because teenagers love to be scared. There's one thing teenagers love. It's to be scared. So my son, who's in the Navy, we were talking about this um, one time during uh, summer while I was there in San Diego visiting about these books. He's like, Mom, where are my books? Where are my books? And I'm like, I can't, I haven't been able to find them. So I ordered him all three books off of Amazon not too long ago, but I haven't given them to him yet because I was waiting to read these stories. Um, that's how much he loved them. He used to read them at night. He used to turn all the lights off in his bedroom, shut his door, and read these stories to himself. That's, that's how much people love these stories. And so um, here's the thing. These um, collections of folklore, campfire stories, legends, um, Alvin Schwartz, traveled everywhere digging through books 
And the first book was published in 1981, and immediately people loved them and started buying them. So he did three volumes. He did more, actually. He's a very prolific writer. But, um, of course, those religious um, groups that we were referring to, Carl was referring to, got together and said, oh, my goodness, these books are demonic. And so it was hard to get them into school libraries. But you could always buy them at the bookstore. Carl, how ironic was it that it wasn't the stories that caused the parent groups, religious groups, to get upset about them. It was the amazing illustrations. Well, may may I just say something uh, from my point of view? Anyone who's afraid of something that's written, uh, generally they don't even read them and they try to boycott them. I am not that type of Christian. Go read Harry yeah, Potter. Yeah, that's Go what read. I just said. Most of the parents, yeah. like, it even had a woman who was the head of the boycott. She said, oh, I just seen the illustration of what he's reading, and I thought that was so disturbing that I thought that he shouldn't be reading it. And if you looked at the illustrations for the books, which they did use as the basis of the monster in the movie, those were just scary as hell as is. Right, mm-hmm. they're scary. They are very scary. I remember when I ordered the first book for my son, and it came <laughs> with that scary skeleton head smoking. You know, I'm like, what? <laughs> Look at this. And then I read it, and I'm like, oh, these are great. These are just great stories. But the these are scary pictures, super yeah. scary pictures. And you can find them online if you just, uh, research Alvin Schwartz or um, uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. But yeah, I mean, and they were some of the first books to get banned in public schools. Yes. Yeah, you can't find these right now in public, not in my school district. Well, no, they're banned in school. They're on the same list as the Clockwork Orange. Go ask Alice. Stephen King. Uh, What's some other so-called nasty books that have been banned, Carl? Slaughterhouse uh, Five. <laughs> yeah. So they're saying a kid's book. Uh, Scary Tales in the Dark is as bad, if not worse, or less than a clockwork orange. They're not, the the stories are not comparable at all. No. Not at all. But, you know, these these things, these pictures, they're scary. They're definitely scary. But these are the things that that I was talking about, the things that people are scared of. Uh, most people, you know, seek them out to have a thrill and have fun. Some people have this weird idea of heaven and hell and the the, the demon god Satan or whatever. And so they put religious connotations on this stuff. So they well, live a purely sad life. They think that what disturbs them disturbs everyone 
one in the room. If we right. ask me, you, and Carl what really disturbs us, we'd get three different answers, wouldn't we, guys? Oh, yeah. absolutely. You it's a blind man and an elephant situation. Everybody has their different points of view of what is bad. Right. And you're never right. going to get anyone to agree on that. Right. Right. I I agree with that. That's why we're lucky to live where we live. Well, until about three years ago, but let's not get into that side of politics. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Not for, yeah, the, what scares me the most? <laughs> the Donald. <laughs> what scares me the most? Carl dancing in a thong with makeup on singing I'm So Pretty while dancing around New York streets. Oh, God. Did you do that, Carl? Uh, that would scare me, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I love to dance. And be silly. You all know that. Yes. And what stories did you, uh, what's what's the first story did you take out? Okay, I chose, okay, they're not that scary, but I like them before their creepiness. Um, My first story is called Cemetery Soup. And um, it's just downright creepy. And both characters are creepy. And and so it just is, it's like a, a really good Halloween story. And it has a cemetery, of course, in it. And it has an old woman. And it has a creepy voice in it. Um, uh, a voice with no body. At least that's what we're led to believe. Oh, cool. Well, read your first story then. Okay. This is called Cemetery Soup. On her way home from the market, the woman took a shortcut through the cemetery. There, sticking up out of the ground, she saw a big bone. She picked it up and looked it over carefully. This will make a very good soup bone, she said. I'll take it home right now. It's perfect weather for hot soup. When she got home, the first thing she did was start the soup. Into the big soup pot went water, carrots, green beans, corn, barley, onions, potatoes, a snitch of beef, some salt and pepper, and at last the bone. She brought it all to a boil, then brought it down to a simmer. Yum, she said, smelling it and tasting it. I can hardly wait till supper. Suddenly, she heard a small voice. Please give me back my bone. The woman paid no attention. Soon she heard the voice again. May I have back my bone, please? The woman was reading the newspaper, and again she didn't take any notice. In a little while, the voice spoke up again. It was beginning to sound angry. Give me back my bone. The woman kept on reading the newspaper. 
Some people are too impatient, she muttered. Once more, the voice spoke. Now it sounded very angry, and it was so loud that the whole house shook. I want back my bones! The woman reached into the pot, grabbed the bone, and threw it out the window. In a voice just as loud, she shouted, Take it! Then there was an eerie silence. The woman heard footsteps scurrying away from the house down the road toward the cemetery. And then she got up and served herself some soup. Yum! (laughs) I'm telling you, that woman is creepy. (laughs) She ate soup made from a bone from the cemetery. <laughs> and that's why I love the scary tales where you get on your second one. It has that creepiness, but it has that kitty silliness, doesn't it, Carl? It certainly does. That beautiful balance. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Because you could take that, I mean, with the film that just came out. You can take these stories and you can make them, you can twist them into some really scary stuff. Like the Wendango, I think was taken from the story in the third book or the second book, not in the first book. And, uh, um, yeah, uh, these stories, you could make, you could really creep out that cemetery soup one. I thought the Wendango was taken from Ravenous. Um, what, from the movie, the screenplay? No, he's just saying, uh, uh, you know, about eating uh, humans. Yeah, oh. that's the, oh. the, the oh, legend you... of the Wendigo. He who eats the flesh of a human becomes a monster. Right. Well, that's in these, that's one of the stories in um, these three volumes. And so Schwartz had to have dug it up somewhere. And yeah, so he that has must a lot go back of folk tales in it, but he kept yeah. it kitty and silly. Outside of the creepy illustrations where, where, hell, Carl was raised on EC Comics. Yep. Right. I love EC Comics. I had the Witching Hour and the DC Comics, Unexpected, Ghost Stories. Weird War Tales. I I read the comics, the like the um, the scary stories, the horror stories, the um, the curse. I can't remember the title of the comics that I read, but I mostly bought horror comics when I was younger. I loved them. Yeah, they and they didn't bother me. us at all. We turned out no. Normal. I haven't murdered well, anyone yet. Have I, true. Carl? This is true. No, you have not. <laughs> yeah. No, you have not, because I would be probably murdered by now. <laughs> <laughs> not for the lack of yeah. trying. <laughs> true. Very true. I have not tried. I have not tried to kill that man. No, I know you okay. haven't. <laughs> Why not? I mean, what? good for you. 
because I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> not no, I, I will Carl. say this. You would not look good in orange. I'm just saying. Oh, but I like orange. Um, no, I, um, no, I'm not going to go to jail because of Carl. <laughs> there's, a, there's other reasons to go to jail. Not, not that. Okay, would you like me to read my next story? Yeah, what's your second story called? It's called The Curse. And first off, I just want to say that um, Charlie Potter is not part of Harry Potter's family. Okay, so if you're listening and you're wondering why the heck he doesn't pull out his wand or something, they're not really <laughs> There's lots and lots of Potters out there. <laughs> And I don't know what Thank that you for not was. laughing like I did, Carl. <laughs> and so, you want me to read it? Yeah. Okay, this is called The Curse. And so, my dad's friend, Charlie Potter, was a small, nervous man with who always looked around as if he was in some kind of danger. After he told me this story about his college fraternity, I understood why. The frat doesn't exist anymore, he said. It was banned years ago. We had just nine members at that point, and we were taking in two more, Jack Lawton and Ernie Kramer. One night in January, just about this time of year, the nine of us took them out into the country for their initiation. We took them to the old deserted house where two young men about our age had been murdered recently. Their murderer was still at large. We gave Jack a lighted candle and told him to go up to the third floor. Stay there for an hour, we told him. Then come back down. Don't speak. Don't make any noise. If your candle goes out, carry on in the dark. From where we were standing, we could see the light from Jack's candle moving up the stairs to the second floor, then to the third. But when he got to the third floor, his candle went out. We guessed that he had come to a drafty corner and the wind blew it out. But when the hour went by, he didn't come down. We weren't so sure. We waited another 15 minutes and got more and more nervous. So we sent Ernie Kramer up after him. When Ernie got to the third floor, his candle also went out. We waited 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but there was no sign of either of them. Come on down, we called, but they didn't answer. Finally, we decided to go and get them. Armed with flashlights, we started upstairs. It was as quiet and as dark as a grave in that house. When we got to the second floor, we called out, but there was no answer. When we got to the third floor, we walked into a great big open space like an attic. Jack and Ernie weren't there, but we saw footprints in the dust. These led to a room on the other side of the attic. That room was also empty, but there was fresh blood on the floor, and the window was wide open. 
It was about 25 feet to the ground, but there was no ladder or rope in the sight, in sight, and they had, they couldn't have used that to get down. We searched the rest of the house and the land around the house and found nothing. We decided that they were playing a trick on us. We figured that in some way they had escaped through the window and were hiding in the woods. The blood on the floor was to throw us off the track. We guessed that they'd show up the next day with a lot of stories and a lot of laughs, but they didn't. The next day we told the dean of men what had happened and he reported it to the police. The police didn't find anything either and after several weeks the search ended. To this day, no one knows what happened to Jack Lawton or Ernie Kramer. There wasn't much more to tell, he said. We weren't arrested, but the college disbanded the fraternity and suspended the nine of us from school for a year. The strangest part came after we graduated. Someone must have placed a curse on us. Every year... Since then, around the time of year of the initiation, one of us has died or gone crazy. I'm the only one left, he said, and I'm in pretty good health. But there are times when I feel just a little peculiar. (laughs) (laughs) The end. Now, that's a beautiful campfire tale. Yes, it is. It really is. At a campfire tale, that will be told from the first person. Right. Right. And then you would move closer and closer to your victim. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just you sitting around the campfire, and then you say, a little peculiar, and then wait, 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 wait. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's what he was collecting in those books, those old-timey campfire tales and things like that. Harmless pieces of folktale history that people took the wrong freaking way. Yep. <coughs> yep. Like most everything, you know, Salem Witch Trials, everything. You know, people, people get scared easily, yeah. but that doesn't give them the right to ban or kill, right? Yeah. Carl, do you think we would have the slasher film genre without the campfire folktale? Oh, no. No, not at all. I mean, look at the biggest uh, slasher films, you know, uh Black Christmas. They're all at camp. I mean, we've talked about it. You've got camp. You've got well, school. Well, not just the camp. Black Christmas. If you're in oh. college and you screw around and drink, this is what'll happen to you. Halloween. Yep. The babysitter goes out. That uh, uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Duh. Candyman. Right. Man's even based completely around the folktale. Mm-hmm. Right. The ring. As a segue, how did they tell folk tales before we had stories? 
They told them in poems, didn't they, Carl? They certainly did. They and certainly how did. did. They and, tell, and, let me finish. And how how did they tell them before we had poems, Carl? A lot of it had to do with song. Song. Also. And with that, we're going to call. Okay, well, the one that I have ready at this point is uh, it's actually a song by Joe Jackson, and he wrote the music and lyrics. But the whole idea of this song is based on Faust by Goethe. Uh, and, and it's basically, if you don't know the Faust story, it's someone who sells their soul to the devil. And so this particular song, uh, uh, which I'll be do- not singing, but uh, saying this poem, reciting this poem, is called The Man Who Wrote Danny Boy. And uh, Miss Vicky, are you willing to give me an assist on this? Yes, I am. Okay. But first so, of all, I have two questions about this. For the past okay. two years you've been there. What is it about song lyrics like this that attracts you to them to be to tell as, well, they do mask scary tales, but what attracts you to them? Well, this particular one, I've always been fascinated with the Faust story. Uh, it, 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 it's something that's reverberated uh, throughout my life, uh, and and so I'm really interested in that. And and another thing is is Joe Jackson happens to be one of my favorite musicians. So the music and the way that he puts this within the song is just absolutely stunning. But also, you know, uh, I've also loved Halloween and scary stuff. And 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 so a lot of you know when I uh, collected uh, records. A lot of it was novelty stuff on monsters and things like that. I loved when I was a kid, you know, I loved Frankenstein. I loved Dracula. And so all of that has always, and I've always loved songs about them. So, so you put the two together and uh, that's, that's what really attracts me to this particular. And plus, uh, when you got serious music, I've only got one name to say to you and that's Robert Johnson. Yes, yes, and, and and of course Robert Johnson. The whole story is he sold his his soul to the devil at the crossroads, and there you have the Crossroads Blues, and you have the movie that's based on that. Hellhound, and, and the Crossroads Blues, Hellhound on my trail. He did a lot of songs on that. Oh, absolutely, and let's not forget, you know, he he did one or two recording sessions, and then he was killed. You know, you know, it's not like he has a ton of stuff out there. I think it's a total of twenty some songs, total. Yeah. You know, Why uh, was he uh, killed? Uh, he he was killed uh, by a jealous uh, a jealous husband. Well, and actually, he was killed. Uh, there's a lot of stories. Either he was poisoned, or he was knifed, or he was poisoned and knifed. Ooh, fun. Yeah. The poison really. wasn't working fast enough. <laughs> yep. 
But, yeah, and here's the second one. You've done this story two years in a row. Why is it? are you obsessed with Faust? Well, I, I think part of it is, is that I keep trying to make a difference. You know, over the years, I've, I've done producing, I've, I've done all sorts of things, and I've never been able to get over the top and, 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 and do something everyone and, – and any artist, anyone who plays music, anyone who writes music, anyone who writes books, there's this sense that you do want to be remembered. I mean, I'm growing – you know, I'm 61 years old now. You know, I have a limited amount of time. Who's going to remember me? Who's going to really, you know, and so so the idea of selling your soul for that one thing that everyone will always remember is 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 very tempting. And and it's something that we all sort of deal with to a certain degree. Yeah, and, and we all want to be the that In the original version of Faust, most movie and operatic adaptions of it, just simplify it that he sells his soul for money and fame mm-hmm. rather than that. Because the Emil Jennings, the silent version of Faust, he sells his soul so he can get the cure to help cure the village that he's in of the, of the plague. Yeah. Yep. It's so it's a good story. Go you can okay, tell. Yes, well, the man. I've already forgot it because I'm. Okay, so so this is called the man who wrote Danny Boy, and again, with an assist from Miss Vicky Love, the man who wrote Danny Boy. Well, it happened one night at three in the morning. The devil appeared in my studio room, and he said, "Hey, I'm your pal." And I'll make you a deal. Blow away all your struggle, and I'll take your soul for a toy. After rubbing my eyes, I looked all around me at the half-finished dribble I'd worked on for days. And I told him my dream was to live for all time in some perfect refrain, like the man who wrote Danny Boy. And I said, if you're real, then I'll ask you a question. While most of us turn into ashes or dust. Just you and that other guy go on forever. But who writes a history, and who do I trust? Well, he gave me a wink, and he said it was funny how mortals would pour all their blood, sweat, and tears onto tape, onto paper, or into the air to be lost and forgotten outside of his kind employ. Then I thought I could hear a great sound in the distance, of whiskey-soaked singing and laughter and cheers. And they're saying that song could bring tears to a glass eye. So pass me the papers, I'll sign them in blood. And the smell of the brimstone was turned into grease paint, and the roar of the crowd like the furies of hell. And I hear the applause, and I hear the bells ringing, and the sound of a woman's voice from the next room. Saying. Saying. Come to me now. Come lay down beside me. Whatever you're doing, you're too gone to see. You can't hold on to shadows no more than the years. So be glad for the pleasures you're young enough to enjoy. 
Hmm. So maybe I'm drunk or maybe a liar or maybe we're all living inside a dream. You can say what you like. When I'm God, then you'll see I'll be down in the dark, down underground with Shakespeare and Bach and the man who wrote Danny Boy. That has to be one of the best lines I've ever heard written. Change what? from brimstone into grease. The smell turned from brimstone into grease paint. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. And they're saying that song could bring tears to a glass eye. Love that, and too. And they haven't practiced on this, and I love the way that Vicky said it and the way that Carl just took up from there. Yeah, without practice. <laughs> if you yeah. if you guys would have practiced that, I don't think it would have come out so good. <laughs> yeah. I well, I tell you, I I know the song and I know the rhythms of it, uh, and, and it's a great song. Um, and, and I would say to anyone to listen to it, but uh, but it's 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 got a wonderful rhythm to it. And it just rolls off the tongue, and I love the lyrics. And I, as, as you said, the war, the you know, the smell of the brimstone was turned into grease paint. It's a great line. These are fabulous lyrics. And, and then they make it fabulous tone. Thank you for being on as usual. And before we go on to our next two stories, which will be Miss Boo, next will be Miss Grim Dracula himself, Mister Grimsby. <laughs> The Lord of the Vampires reading H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider. And Miss Boo Radley, Miss, Mrs. Boo with her tale. I have to end this part of the show with one of the best lines ever, and this is from The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. We are the dreamers of. Or is this Willy Wonka? We are the dreamers of the dreams. We are the tellers of the tale. Amen. Amen. Yep. And thank you guys for being it. on. And enjoy the rest You're of welcome. the show. I'll be back at the end of it to tell another story. If there's time remaining. Thank you, everybody. And happy Halloween. And much love to you, Vicki. And to you, and to you, Carl. Um, thank Happy you very Halloween. much. Happy and Halloween, everyone. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you, Stephen. Good night. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. And now it's time for the man himself, Vlad, with the one, the only, the very creepy Outsider by H.P. Ludcraft. Take it away, Vlad. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. 
That night the Baron dreamt of many a woe, and all his warrior guests, with shade and form of witch and demon and large coffin worm, were long been nightmared. Keats Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and mending rows of antique books, or upon odd watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken, and yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those sere memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones and the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gazed steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended, save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself, or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strode some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own, for although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was merely equality, unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside across the putrid moat and under the dark mute trees, 
I would often lie and dream for hours about what I had read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back, lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then in the shadowy solitude of my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky, and at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dark twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill of haunted and venerable mold assaulted me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure that I might peer out and above and try to judge the height I had attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor in the darkness. I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended, since the slab was the trap door of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, but hoped when necessary to pry it open again. Believing I was now at a prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the world, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. 
More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked. But with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I had ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon, which I had never seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dare not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me, on a level through the grating, nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was, or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch, out of that region of slabs and columns, and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it, curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river, where crumbling, mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light, 
and sending forth sound of gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company, indeed making merry, and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before, and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted. But when I moved toward one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there. A hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had, by its simple appearance, changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and desolation, the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror, I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel, an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort toward flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close. Though they were mercifully blurred, and shooed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock, 
I tried to raise my hand to shut off the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the Karayan thing whose hideous, hollow breathing I half fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close. When in one cataclysmic second of cosmic, nightmarish, and hellish accident, my fingers touched the rotting, outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is a balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second, I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream, I fled from that haunted and accursed pile and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nefren Ka in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nitocris beneath the Great Pyramid. Yet in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe has called me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century, and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers, and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. Hey, it's Spooky Boo, author of the Spooky Boo Scary Storytime podcast. Tonight I have for you a very delicious tale of gluttony and horror. Something that will make you think twice about going all out on Taco Tuesday. Join me for a reading on Halloween, October 31st, about the Halloween traditions in my favorite little oceanside town of Sandcastle, where the fight between good and evil never ends. 
You'll get wrapped up in the holiday fair and never want to leave. Get more info at www.scarystorytime.com. Now let's begin. I don't know when this all started. Perhaps it was the taco truck outside of my home one day. Perhaps I had eaten some uncooked pork and one of those worms traveled to my brain to rest until it died, taking me with it. Maybe it was a water bug that enjoys traveling up your nose and into your brain when you snort it into your system through tepid tropical waters. Whatever it was, it happened when I was in South Florida. I didn't notice it right away, but I knew something was off. During the day, I'd stumble and fall, and went to sleep in the morning all morning long. I thought I had a cold as I was sneezing and sniffling uncontrollably until I downed some of the horrible-tasting cough and cold medicine that lets you sleep all through the night. I awoke refreshed and feeling like a new person. I was happy, vibrant. My whole outlook on life had changed. In fact, I. Thought I was a better person. I felt like I had accomplished so much when, in reality, I really hadn't. It didn't matter. I wasn't a bipolar person or a manic depressive in any terms, but it felt so much different. I felt like I could conquer the world. I went into work with a smile, which was a huge attitude change for me. People noticed. They actually smiled back. That had never happened before. Some were confused. I even heard Leslie ask her sidekick if someone had removed the stick from my ass. I laughed at her and winked. Now that was funny. She seemed a bit confused as I normally didn't speak to her, but I let her know that donuts were on their way and her happy fat ass would enjoy them. I think that was my first mistake of the morning. She burst into tears and suddenly everyone was against me. I didn't mean anything by it. She calls herself fat ass all of the time. I abruptly apologized and went into my office. Would you like some coffee, ma'am? My secretary offered into the loudspeaker. She was usually chipper, but I could hear the concern in her voice. Yes, please. And would you bring in some of those donuts? I'm really hungry. A few minutes later, the donuts appeared with the coffee I had asked for. Mins was such a good slave working at a low income. Maybe I'll give her a raise. Maybe not. I'm not even sure if she earned it this year, sitting on her ass all day long and rarely doing anything but filing her nails. She did know what kind of donuts I liked, though. Give her a prize for that knowledge. The hunger was gripping me as I stared at the chocolate glazed goodness in front of me. One bite and a whole donut was devoured. The second one went just as fast. I didn't even realize they were gone until the hunger pains in my stomach growled again. I opened my emergency drawer and pulled out a bag of chocolate candy. Piece by piece, I ate without even stopping. The phone rang. There was a knock at my office door. All ignored until I popped that last piece into my mouth. I sat there dumbfounded while staring at the empty bag. I usually just eat a small handful to keep my day going decently if I find myself in a bad mood. I had never eaten a whole bag before, 
and yet I was still hungry. I tried working more. I even tried calling the customers I didn't like just so I could get angry enough not to eat, and nothing was working at all. The more I sat, the hungrier I got. It was so frustrating and humiliating. First, I set out to the company fridge. I figured maybe some of yesterday's luncheon was left over. I started eating what was left of the chow mein and then the sweet and sour. I didn't even bother to heat it up. I just ate it. I ate it all, including the barbecued pork spare ribs and the nasty pineapple fried rice. I couldn't believe I ate the fried rice as it always tasted like crap the next day, all dried out and crunchy. But I just kept on eating. I searched around for more food. Other people had lunches in the fridge. I was a bit apprehensive to touch any of their meals, but then I thought, what the hell, right? You only live once. People were gathering around as I started off with Greg's meatloaf sandwich and then Francesca's tuna salad sandwich. I guzzled down Pat's protein drink and then George's Subway sandwich from the deli. After the whole fridge was devoured, the hunger grew, and I pushed through the crowd, leaving the whole mess on the table, then went out to my car. Several people followed me and stared in curiosity as I poured the remaining cashew mix into my mouth from the seat of my car, and then I grabbed a trail mix bag and ate that too. Sadly, I was still hungry, so I drove off. Screw the job. Who needs to sit there all day talking to whiny customers anyway? All they do is bitch all of the time. I hit the store on the way home and grabbed a huge family pack of ground beef, and then suddenly it hit me. All I really wanted was meat. I bought as many of the family packages as I could, including pork chops, bacon, steak, and then some. The clerk looked at me almost cross-eyed when the total of $750 rang up on the register. I knew I didn't have that much in my checking, so I pulled out my company credit card. Hell, they were going to fire me anyway at that point, and I might as well use as much as I could. Before arriving home, I used their card once again and bought a few bacon burgers and mushroom Swiss burgers at the fast food place. The first six I scarfed down even before I hit my driveway. Tom, the neighbor I had a crush on for years after I moved in, ran over to help me with the groceries as I got out of the car. He hoisted a few bags in his arms while I carried the fast food and keys. As I opened the door, he rushed in and put them on the table. Having a barbecue, he asked while pointing out all the meat. Thinking about it, I lied. I didn't want him to know it was all for me. He eyed the fast food bags and just nodded. Just let me know. I have to get on to work now. What time will you be home? I asked, not even knowing why. Around four, he said as he started to walk out the door. Come back then and have some. I smiled and felt just a little weird for asking. It hadn't even crossed my mind, almost like eating all the food in the fridge. I just did it for no reason. After putting away the groceries, I started with the bags of fast food. After the first two, I really didn't have an appetite for the buns and tossed all of them away. Soon it was the veggies turned to disappear into the trash can. All I wanted was the meat. I gorged on the patties and cheese. The only reason why I ate the cheese is because it was impossible to take off. 
worse, I was still hungry. I started cooking the ground beef, and as I waited, the pain in my stomach grew so much that it hurt. I hunched down with the cramps and bashed my fists against the ground. I knew I was going insane. It, it, I had to be. I started crying and fell asleep on the floor of my kitchen in tears. After twenty minutes later, the smoke alarm woke me up. I had totally burnt the burgers I was cooking. There were four, all charred on one side and slightly well done on the other. One by one, without even caring about the burn marks on my lips and tongue, I ate them. I felt the hot meat travel down my throat and esophagus piece by piece and burning my insides on the way down, but I kept on until all of the meat was gone. After turning on the exhaust fan, I went into the bathroom and looked at my face. I didn't recognize it. My eyes didn't look like my eyes. I felt like I was staring at a stranger. In fact, it eerily made me hungrier. My lips were blistered from the heat of the burnt hamburger, and so was my tongue. As I looked at the blisters like they were fresh meat, I mumbled, Why cook it if it's going to hurt you? My stomach started to really hurt then, not from being full and not from being possibly burnt. It was hungrier than ever. I looked at the ground beef I left on the counter, and then, as shocking as it was to me, I grabbed fistfuls of the raw meat and started shoving them into my mouth. One handful after the other, I chewed the bloody raw meat and swallowed. It was so delicious that I couldn't stop. I finally felt whole. Next, I grabbed a six-piece package of T-bone steak. Grabbing the ends of the bones, I masticated each fleshy part of the meat and dropped the bones on the styrofoam when finished. My stomach gurgled in need more when I looked at the bones I left behind after eating the raw meat. Piece by piece, I chewed up the bones, breaking teeth in the process and sometimes stabbing my gums and cheeks. At that point, I didn't know if my blood-stained fingers were from the meat or my mouth, but it tasted good. I chewed on my lip for a moment, tearing a piece off and swallowing it, then quickly forcing that out of my mind. Oh, I couldn't stop. I ate the sausages, uncooked, of course. I even cracked the eggs into my mouth and swallowed each one. Soon I was playing in another package of ground beef while throwing handfuls up into the air and catching them into my mouth. Mmm, it tasted so good. I even licked up the pieces off the floor that missed my lips. It was almost four when I heard the knock at the door. I knew I was a bloody mess, but I didn't care. When I let Tom inside, he was a bit taken by my appearance. What did you do, eat all of the meat? He laughed, probably not even knowing how close he was to the truth. I was puzzled as to why I didn't feel full at all, hearing his statement, but then I caught myself wondering how juicy his arm must be with all of those muscles. Did you just get done working out? I asked as I ran my finger down his arm and pressed hard into his bicep. He stepped back awkwardly and snorted a laugh. Yeah, I did. My stomach roared even louder as I felt the muscle tense under my grip. I wanted to dig my nails into his flesh and rip the muscle to the bone, then eat it. The saliva pooled into my lower lip and dripped down the side of my mouth. My grip tightened. Hey, I gotta go. Maybe some other time, he said as he pushed me away and ran out the door. 
At that point, the hunger in my stomach turned into extreme pain. I was cramping for food, for meat. When I questioned it, my brain screamed raw, and my conscience said no. I was torn, confused. I bashed my fists against my head, then replaced them with the wall. As I pounded my head on the surface of the drywall, the blood began to trickle down my face. Staring at the crimson dent I made into the paint, I tasted the liquid dripping onto my lips. My stomach roared again. I couldn't let the world see me like this, but I had already eaten all of the meat in the house, and I was starving for more. Then I remembered the rat traps I put in the garage. I crawled down like a cat waiting for its prey, then opened the garage door. The dense heat warmed my now cold heart and felt good, but not enough to curb my appetite. Right there in the trap was a dead rat. It wasn't there last night, as I had just put the trap out. It looked at me with dead, beady eyes as I removed it from the metal clamp. The little bit of human left in me cringed as I tore into the fur and flesh of the creature. I chewed and chewed, then swallowed the beast from nose to tail. Finally, satisfaction. I felt full. I rested in the corner of the warm garage for a bit until I felt a tug at my finger. It was another rat, probably smelling its friend and the dried blood on my hand. As my gut roared again, I grabbed it while it squealed and bit into the hair and skin. The shrieks of pain only added to my frenzy while I ate until the squeals subsided and it lay dead in my hands. Disgusted with the rest of its body, I tossed it out aside until the urge hit me again, and I ran outside to grab it. The neighbors were watching now, including that cute guy I wanted to devour. They pointed at me and whispered. I hissed at them and ran on all fours like an ape back into my house and slammed the door. I suppose that was the last straw. They knew I was crazy and something had to be done about it, which meant that I knew I couldn't leave my house. I sat there in front of the fireplace all night long while screeching and starving. The roar in my belly ached so bad and there was nothing in the house that would satisfy me. I tried everything. I tried bread, donuts, cookies, cereal, and none of them worked. The vegetables just gave me stomach pain. I wanted, no, I needed meat. As I grew colder and sat closer to the fireplace, I looked down at my arm. Suddenly my mouth began to water as I watched the muscle twitch in my bicep. I rubbed my nose and mouth against it, horrified by the thought, but so very, very hungry. My lips felt good against my skin, and my tongue tingled at the salty taste. As I bit down, I screamed in pain and moaned at the pleasure of the blood filling my mouth. I began to chew and gnaw at my own flesh, blood pouring down my arm, and as I swallowed my first bite, I smiled into the mirror in the living room. I'm not sure if it was the scream that brought the police over or they were already on their way because of my strange behavior outside, but I just remember lying there with half of my arm gone and my body in a state of shock to hide the pain. As they picked me up and put me on a gurney, I laughed and my stomach roared. 
Days later, as I lie strapped down to a hospital bed in a drug-induced coma, I remember hearing the doctor talking about my x-rays to another. He said something about a worm in my brain that was similar to a pork worm, touching on my hypothalamus and another in the frontal lobe. They say nothing can be done about it until the worms either died or I died, because certainly surgery, removing the worm would kill me or leave me a vegetable. As one of the doctors leaned over and checked my eyes, my stomach began rumbling. I hope you enjoyed my story, Two Talkers for a Buck. I have more horrifying tales about the city of Sandcastle at www.scarystorytime.com. That's all for tonight. I'll see you in your nightmares. Okay, here we go with my first story of the night, and it is Dragon Chili from the Grand Church Cookbook by Joe R. Lansdale. This recipe is in response to the one I posted here on Share Your Recipes a week ago that proved to be more popular than I expected. I have been asked by so many readers to post another, and I am not immune to flattery or persuasion, of course. Even mild persuasion. I am back with culinary enthusiasm, and this time out, I would like to post my recipe for dragon chili. I know dragons are not normally fought as an ingredient in chili, but trust me, they are an excellent source of protein, are very low in fat, and the meat is very clean and low caloric, and it does not taste like chicken or the more popular chili meat. Dragon meat has gotten a bad reputation due to a misunderstanding about dragons. First off, for the meat to be good and for it to work in any chili recipe, it is necessary that you require a very young dragon. The younger the meat, the sweeter. You should also avoid the green dragons, as there is nothing you can do to make that asshole meat serviceable. The brown dragons are the very best. At an early age, when they are no more than three feet long, they are perfect. Their eyes are just open, which is a sign that all the blood toxins in the blood have passed, which is the way of the brown dragons. And the meat, especially in the tail, is ready to be harvested. The head meat, though darker, is also very, very tasty and is best made in the ground patties. The body meat is fine as well, but riddled with bone, so extreme care should be taken lest you get one of them small bones that litter the dragon's torso and appear to accomplish nothing towards locomotion or the firmness of the body and are extraordinarily hard to detect during a simple cleaning. Also, the heart. Remember, browns have two hearts instead of one like green dragons, and like both kind of dragons, they are large and eight-chambered. And the fatty livers are 
delicacies and require a different approach of preparation that I am going to provide here. And some people suggest that for them to be enjoyed, one has to persevere because they are something of an acquired taste. For chili, we are going to reconsider the head meat and the tail meat. I prefer the tail meat as then I like my chili meat to be sliced and chopped as opposed to ground. And once again, the white meat of a dragon's tail is so vastly superior to the darker meat of the head. It is also necessary to prepare the dragons alive. Dragon, the moment they die, begin to go bad. That is true of all meat, of course, but with the dragon, it is a much faster process than with any other meat known. Within a few hours, unless cooked, the meat becomes foul. If the meat is cut from the dragon quickly and deep fried, or in the case of other kinds of recipe, boil the bread, etc., you know how that goes. For whatever reason, the meat ceases to spoil and retains its sweetness and will keep permanently, although the other ingredients in your recipe can go bad and make the meat inedible. The best way to prepare the meat is to, well, catch the dragon, of course. You should do this with a net. They can find shortly after birth, whenever the mother dragon is away, searching out cattle or other foods that digest, and then regurgitates in the baby dragon's mouth. At this early age, if you watch and make sure the mothers are away, the dragons are fairly harmless, and the net is the best way to catch them. The net should be a very strong wire. The dragon's ability to breathe fire does not kick in until the creature ages the age of a year or so. But even at an early age, their tail can thrash violently and have more of a passing resemblance to adult claws. Even the beating of their little wings can cut you like a knife. When the dragon has been captured... It is desirable to calm it for a couple of days. After a day or two of calming the dragon down, it should be placed on a diet of fresh milk and soft vegetables for about a week. And then it can be stroked. Once its confidence is gained, it should not be removed gently from the holding pen. Do not excite... It should be moved gently. Sorry. I'm just getting so damn hungry telling this story. Do not excite the dragon, as its tails and claws and wings could be dangerous. I know I have mentioned this, and I don't mean to overemphasize it, but it is a very important thing to consider. Keep the beast calm. This isn't hard to do, since the dragon is by nature trusting. The best way to prepare the dragon is lay it lengthwise on a sturdy board as wide and long as the dragon. A neat trick... To help with the preparation is to cover the board with vegetable oil. Dragons will be very attracted to this and lick it. Very carefully, paste a long spike at the back of the dragon's head where the neck joins. And with a well-timed and a well-placed strike with a hammer, boom! Drive the nail through the dragon's spine and into the board. It is advisable... To slip a rope over the tail of the dragon before the strike. And to gently pull it taut while it is preoccupied with licking the board. This strike, if performed time, if properly performed, 
should sever the dragon's spine and its ability to thrash its tail. The sounds that make will be excruciating, and it will be tempting to put the dragon out of its misery quickly, but this will run the meat. The best thing to do now is to whack the tail off at the base, saving that bit of meat from contamination should you now be slightly off the spine. The head meat does not contaminate as long as the animal is alive, so it is best to use a star sharp and steady blade and pliers to slowly strip the skin in the head before cutting into the bone with an electric bone saw and into the brain. I should also add that wiring the wings together carefully before binding the tail gently and striking the dragon with the nail or spike is advisable. As I said, the wings can be dangerous as the teeth of the nail. But, as I was saying about the stripping of the meat, only at this point should the animal be allowed to die. They are sturdy and can withstand having their skin removed. You can just let them bleed out, or you can finish them with a strew strokes of your mallet. I find wielding a mallet a messy endeavor, and I just generally let them bleed out and die. Now let's return our attention to the recipe. We now have the tail and the head meat. It is suggested if dragons is not available, then the meat of small children is equally satisfying and tasty, and they're much easier to handle. But with a large number of, law of children being born due to restrictions in the law, and those that are being placed in the orphanage, this is a perfect way to take care of them. And there are some butcher shops that specialize in children already butchered and prepared, though this is not as true of the dragon. Children are a perfect substitute for many dishes, and they can suffice to duplicate or at least take the place of anything from pork to chicken to beef to fish to dragon. It depends on the part of the children you use. It all begins to taste a bit like beef or pork if the child gets too old, so keep that in mind. So of course when they are adults they are free to make their own choices. Eating adults is definitely out, as anyone in their right mind should know. Children as meat have become very popular, and frankly it is the way the population can be lowered without it being an unnecessary death or some form of stem cell usage which goes against the laws of God and man. Food is not a waste, and I say here, and without fear, that we are all creatures of God, and God believes that we are the rulers of the earth, and although life is, though all life is precious, and all babies should be preserved, it is obviously okay for them up until a certain age to be eaten, as this activity, nourishing oneself, was in God's plans. Abortion clinics of the past gave women a choice, but they should be no choice. All life is sacred and should be preserved until that moment that it becomes meat or it becomes an adult. No babies or human, no babies of dragons or humans' persuasions were killed in the womb for any dish that I have prepared. And I am proud of that. I only use fresh, out-of-the-womb meat 
that no one wants or has abused or has taken a limb from. I stress this because there are underground recipes that uses, make use of aborted embryo, embryos. And this is a foul blow against God. And I would not want to be thought one of their ilk. Forgive me for my distraction, but since this cookbook is designed for the church, I suppose its dictates and concerns were on their mind. Hail to him that is love, hail to God, who knows all and loves all and wants us to protect and defend his children. And remember, Dragon Chili, with the occasional substitute, is one of the finest and tastiest meals that one can digest. For like the child comes from the eggs of a female in the seed of a male, and none of it has been spilled or has been violated in the womb. It is all meat, fresh and clean, and unwanted and unloved. Except prepared in the manner I suggested, adding plenty of black pepper and a smidge of salt and lots of chili pepper to taste. Cook on. Bully Kafer, chef with the church of the Religious Union on Harmony, and the home of the one true God and his minions. Thank you very much. The Lottery by Shirley Jackson The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank, around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 2nd. But in this village, where there was only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours, so it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher, of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon, the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet and they smiled rather than laughed. The women, wearing faded house dresses and sweaters, came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another in exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women, standing by their husbands, began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing, back to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his oldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him because he had no children and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square, carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, Little late today, folks. 
The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool, and when Mr. Summers said, "'Some of you fellows want to give me a hand?' There was a hesitation before two men, Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before Old Man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was presented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year, after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything's being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now, it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show their original wood color, and in some places faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the villager was tiny, but now that the population was more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning. The rest of the year, the box was put away, Sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing-in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery, At one time, some people remembered, there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duty each year. Some people believed that the official of the lottery used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been, also, a ritual salute which the official of the lottery had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time. Until now, it was felt necessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all of this. In his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box, he seemed very proper and important as he talked intermittently to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Summers finally let off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Mrs. Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders, and slid into place in the back of the crowd. "'Clean forgot what day it was,' she said to Mrs. Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. "'Thought my old man was out back stacking wood,' Mrs. Hutchinson went on. "'And then I looked out the window, and the kids were gone, and then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running.' She dried her hands on her apron, and Mrs. Delacroix said, "'You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there.' 
Mrs. Hutchison craned her neck to see through the crowd and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Mrs. Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, "'Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson,' and, "'Bill, she made it after all.' Mrs. Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, "'Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie.' Mrs. Hutchinson said, grinning, "'Wouldn't have me leave dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe?' And soft laughter ran through the crowd as the people stirred back into position after Mrs. Hutchinson's arrival. "'Well now,' Mr. Summers said soberly, "'guess we better get started, get this over with, so we can get back to work. "'Anybody ain't here?' Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar. Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said. And Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone else in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Mrs. Dunbar answered. Horace is not but sixteen yet, Mrs. Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I got a fill-in for the old man this year. Right, Mr. Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding. Then he asked, Watson boy drawing this year? A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said. I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, "'Good fellow, lad, and good to see your mother's got a man to do it.' "'Well,' Mr. Summers said, "'guess that's everyone. "'Old man Warner make it?' "'Here,' a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. "'A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. "'All ready?' he called. "'Now, I'll read the names, heads of families first, "'and the men come up and take a paper out of the box. "'Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn.' Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams. A man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said, and Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorlessly and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box, took out a folded paper, He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Allen, Mr. Summer said. Anderson. Bentham. Seemed like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Mrs. Delacroix said to Mrs. Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through with the last one only last week. Time sure goes fast, Mrs. Graves said. Clark. Delacroix. There goes my old man, Mrs. Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said, and Mrs. Dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said, Go on, Janie, and another said, There she goes. We're next, Mrs. Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, All through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hand, turning them over and over nervously. Mrs. Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Mrs. Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert? Hutchinson? Get up there, Bill, 
Mrs. Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. Jones? They do say, Mr. Adams said to Old Man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old Man Warner snorted, Pack of crazy fools, he said. Listening to the young folks, nothing good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June. Corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Mrs. Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old Van Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke? Percy? I wish they'd hurry, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run, tell Dad, Mrs. Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. Seventy-seventh year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson? The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, Don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summer said, Take your time, son. Zanini? After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows. For a minute, no one moved, and then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go to your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, you didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called, and Mrs. Graves said, All of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Billy Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said, that was done pretty fast, and now we've got to be hurrying a little more to get it done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson family. You got any other households in the Hutchinsons? There's Don and Ava, Mrs. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands, families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair. And I've got no other family except the kids. Then, as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you. Mr. Summers said in explanation, and as far as drawing for households is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right, then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Gaves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box, then, Mr. Summers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Mrs. Hutchinson said as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't give him time enough to choose. Everybody saw that. Mr. Graves had selected the five slips and put them in the box, and he dropped all the papers, put those onto the ground, where the breeze caught them and lifted them off. Listen, everybody, Mrs. Hutchinson was saying to the people around her. 
Ready, Bill? Mr. Summers asked, and Bill Hutchinson, with one quick glance around at his wife and children, nodded. Remember, Mr. Summers said, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you help little Dave. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy who came willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summers said. Davy put his hand into the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. Nancy next, Mr. Summers said. Nancy was twelve, and her school friends breathed heavily as she went forward, switching her skirt, and took a slip daintily from the box. Bill Jr., Mr. Summers said, and Billy, his face red and his feet over large, near knocked the box over as he got a paper out. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. She hesitated for a minute, looking around defiantly, and then set her lips and went up to the box. She snatched the paper out and held it behind her. Bill, Mr. Summers said, and Bill Hutchinson reached into the box and felt around, bringing his hand out at last with the slip of paper in it. The crowd was quiet. A girl whispered, I hope it's not Nancy. And the sound of the whisper reached the edge of the crowd. It's not the way it used to be, old man Warner said clearly. People ain't the way they used to be. All right, Mr. Summers said. Open the papers. Harry, you open little Dave's. Mr. Graves opened the slip of paper, and there was a general sigh through the crowd as he held it up, and everyone could see that it was blank. Nancy and Bill Jr. opened theirs at the same time, and both beamed and laughed, turning around to the crowd and holding their slips of paper above their heads. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. There was a pause, and then Mr. Summers looked at Bill Hutchinson, and Bill unfolded his paper and showed it. It was blank. It's Tessie, Mr. Summers said, and his voice was hushed. Show us her paper, Bill. Bill Hutchinson went over to his wife and forced the slip of paper out of her hand. It had a black spot on it. The black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with the heavy pencil in the coal company office. Bill Hutchinson held it up, and there was a stir in the crowd. All right, folks, Mr. Summers said. Let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost their original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turned to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mr. Dunbar had small stones in both hands, and she said, grasping for Beth, I can't run at all. You have to go ahead, and I'll catch up with you. The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers, with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair. It isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed. And then they were upon her. And that was a small surprise for you, a reading 
that I found, a public domain reading I found on YouTube called Of Surly Jackson's The Lottery. Well, the night's getting late and the fires are burning out. The monsters are ready to go home. Another year has passed and the stories have been told and, they're f and whether it scared you or not is written in stone. So good night, goodbye, farewell until we see you once again. But always remember on All Saints Eve, make sure your soul has no sin. And remember, we have already, we have the audio mix up. The audio mix 19, and it's up, and it's up on pretty much your favorite pay-per-view, I mean, podcast services. And always thank you again. Happy Halloween from Cultside Radio. And there will be a wrap up of what I get to see at the Knoxville Horror Fest. And always remember there's always something lurking in the dark. Just remember is it lurking for you? Happy Halloween month, everybody, and thank you for listening. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.